Well, good morning once again, church. Uh, let me say once again, I'm glad we can be together this morning uh, to look into the Word of God. Uh, that's true every week, uh, but this last week has been a hard one uh, because, you know, there's tough things in the news. We've had forest fires and then flooding with all the gloomy rain for a week kind of brings you down. We had that sub-disaster thing that was kind of, you know, it, those things can weigh on you. And even it's been a tough week for our church family, uh, you know, with the loss of two of our sisters in the Lord in the last few days, um, you know, and we're grieving those losses together as a body of Christ. But in it all, I think one of the best things we can do at times like this is just get back into the Word of God. Because uh, the Word of God is that firm foundation, that solid foundation upon which we stand, upon which we build our lives that does not shift, you know, even in hard times. And the Word of God also, it just offers us a different perspective. Uh, you know, it changes how we see things. And that's so important. And with that in mind, I'll ask you to turn with me to Acts 13. And our passage this morning, it's not a long one, just three verses long, but it is a passage that really transforms, I think, the way that we see things. It should even change how we think about the church. Uh, just as Pastor Ray uh, Stedman he pointed out, that, that the 13th chapter is a turning point in the book of Acts. He says it's what Winston Churchill would have called one of the hinges of history. It marks the beginning of the third phase of the Lord's Great Commission, where you know the gospel now breaks the borders of Judea and Samaria now begins reaching to the ends of the earth. And that work begins in earnest with a vision that God gives to the church that is found in these verses in Acts 13. If you'd like to follow along with me as I read, uh, we'll be looking, as I said, at the first three verses of this passage. Let's say this. Now there were in, it, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Let's pray. Father God, um, we do come before you at this time, Lord, asking that your spirit would be with us, Lord, not only to lead us into truth, but Lord, even today to bring comfort uh, to those of us who are hurting. Uh, and I pray that, Lord, you would help us to focus on the things you would have us here this morning. Uh, pray that you would use me to proclaim uh, just your word uh, to this congregation, to, to build them up, to edify them, to equip them. And uh, Lord, just to help our church just to continue to grow to be the church you have called us to be in this place. And Lord, we just want to dedicate our time to you, ask that you would be with us in a very special way. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it said that the following advertisement appeared in a paper in London, England, in the early years of sort of the 1900s. And the ad read... Men wanted for a hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. 
And the ad was signed by Sir Ernest Shackleton, who was an Antarctic explorer. And you'd kind of think, like, who in their right mind is going to answer an ad like that? And yet, amazingly, the ad drew thousands of respondents, all eager to accept those conditions. And I guess you ask yourself, why? Like, why, why would someone want to take that risk? Why would someone want to make that kind of a sacrifice? Why would anyone bother to leave so much behind just to journey into the unknown? And I think the answer is that there's in the heart of every man and woman a desire and a craving for adventure. There's something in us that wants to face challenges, wants to overcome great obstacles, wants to dare to do great things against the odds. There's, there's something inside of us that calls out to us that life has got to have more to offer us than just existing, just getting by day to day. There's something that says we want to be part of something bigger than ourselves and that our lives should matter. And not just for here and now in the present, but they should matter for eternity. And if I could put a name to that something that dwells in our hearts, I would call it vision. It's the ability to see life and the circumstances for more than just what it is, but seeing what could be. And vision can be a powerful force, you know, because when there's a group of people who together share a common vision for something, there's always a chance that those people are going to change the world. And that's what brings us to our passage this morning and to the city of Antioch, where we see a shared vision taking hold in the church that made that city its home. And Luke, as I said, has already He's already introduced Antioch to us back in chapter 11 of the book of Acts. But as a bit of a refresher, Antioch, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Population of half a million people is what they estimate. Uh, it was known for gambling and prostitution and blood sports and pagan worship and generally, you know, corruption of every kind. It was like the sin city of the Roman Empire. It really was. And yet almost by accident... In this corrupt and wicked city, a small and faithful church was born. And it was born among the Gentiles. And those believers, they, they didn't really have, there's no magic formula, there's no clever strategy, fancy plans for church planting. It was just a small group of Christians that were faithfully telling other people about Jesus. Telling them that he was alive, telling them that he was the son of God, telling them about the forgiveness of the cross and the hope for the future and the life eternal that is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Luke records for us the results of them doing that. In Acts 11, verse 21, it says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So this little church in Antioch was growing. It actually grew to the point where they needed a little extra help. So the church back in Jerusalem sent a guy named Barnabas to help them grow. And the church grew again under Barnabas' leadership. Uh, so they needed even more help. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to find his friend Saul. And he brought him back to Antioch. And together, Barnabas and Saul, the church grew even more. And things were good in that church. In fact, the little church in Antioch was, was so different from the world around it that the people in that town needed a new name to, to describe what these people are about. And we're told for the first time in Antioch, 
They were called Christians. And as amazing as that was, God was actually about to give this church in Antioch a vision for something even more than they had already. And something bigger, I think, than they could ever have even have imagined. And that's where our passage picks up in Acts 13. And I'm going to read the entire three verses here just so we can take it all in in one, one sort of glance. So hear it again. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manion, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them off. We're just going to pause there for a moment just to understand, I guess, how radical and unexpected an idea this was that God had just given to this church. Because up until this time in the book of Acts, the gospel had spread, you know, to new cities and new places, but mostly it had spread kind of by accident or, or out of unforeseen circumstances because it was mostly Christians who were fleeing persecution in one place who went to another place uh, and they simply took the gospel with them. But now in our chapter, God says, it's time for something new. Because God says, you know what, it's now it's time to start sending people intentionally. Sending people with a, th that purpose in mind. Sending people out into the world with the main goal of their going being that they are going to share the gospel. And not only are you going to send people, but the church that sends these people out, they're going to be there to support them and pray for them and encourage them along the way. So in essence, what you've just heard in this passage is God creating missionaries. And that wasn't really a thing before this time. And because of that, and, and the, this vision that God gives to the church in Antioch, we realize the door to sharing the gospel with the Gentile world is thrown wide open. Countless people accept Christ. Antioch would be established as one of the central hubs of Christianity in the ancient world. It became a jumping off point to worldwide revival. Dozens of cities and towns throughout Asia and Europe will have churches planted uh, in the midst. And Saul, who was one of the two, he would begin a ministry that resulted in him writing about half of the New Testament that we hold in our hands. And these Antioch Christians, in doing this, in taking hold of this vision, they would actually set a pattern for sending missionaries out into the world that really still serves as our model for us 2,000 years later. So I don't know what this church in Antioch was, was praying for when they began. But by inviting God's vision, they received something that really did change the world. And I believe God still does that. I believe that God still gives his churches a vision of something more. A vision of something unique for that church. A vision for something amazing that he invites churches to be involved in. But that raises the question, well, how do we do that? How do we take hold of that vision? How as a church can we know what it is that God wants us to do? How can we as a church 
discern God's purposes for us? Or in other words, how do we invite God's vision in our church? Well, that's what I want to talk to you about this morning as we go through this passage. Because I see several important things present in, in this church in Antioch that I think are important and even essential to any church that de desires to have God's vision uh, in, in their lives and in their church. And if you're looking for a bit of an outline, I'll let you know there's actually going to be seven of these points that we're going to look at this morning that we see in Antioch. And the first of those points is that what we see here is that churches that invite vision are churches that are faithful in the little things. And I say that because as a pastor, I know sometimes people will come to you, come to your office, and they'll get really excited about something, something's happened in their life, and they're like, I want to do great things for God. And you're like, wonderful. Like, you know, I want to do, I want God to use my life in powerful ways. I'm like, wonderful. But the first question I'll often ask them is, great, you want to do great things for God, but are you being faithful in the small things for God? Because if you're not in the Word daily, if you're not a person of prayer, if you're not faithfully serving, you know, on a regular basis in your life, it's actually unlikely that God is going to use your life for great things if you're not being faithful in the small things. David Jeremiah actually wrote, God doesn't usually ask people who are doing nothing to do something. He calls people who are already doing something to do something more, something important, something urgent, more sacrificial. And the same is true for churches. God gives vision to churches that are faithful. Even as we see in our passage, verse one says, now there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers. And some people, when they read that, the, the prophets, teachers thing, they think, oh, this church must have had like really special people. Uh, people that set them apart from other churches in a special way that they were able to hear God speak. But that's not what I want you to understand when you read that verse. Because we're told in Ephesians 4, verse 11 and 12, it says that, and he, God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Those are things that are given to every church that is being built up in the Lord. So when Luke is who's writing the book of Acts, when he says this church had prophets and teachers, he's not saying this church was special. What he's saying is that God had given this church the tools and the leadership that every church is given to be faithful and growing church. And again, if we look at the track record of the church in, in Antioch, that's exactly what we know about them. You know, back in, in Acts chapter 11, Luke's account of this church, we see this was a growing church. We see that this was a church that was committed to teaching the word of God. We see that this was a church committed to living out their faith. And it was a church that was committed to sharing Jesus Christ with others. This was a church that was faithful. And as I said, that matters because churches that are faithful in the little things are churches that will best be able to take hold of God's vision for greater things. And that leads us to our second lesson. And that is that churches that invite vision are churches that have a level of what I would call a holy discontent in their midst. And I, I want to explain that a little bit because discontent is usually something we think of as a bad thing. But holy discontent isn't. Because holy discontent is simply, in our life. it's just a, a desire for more. 
It's that feeling within us that no matter how far we've come in faith, it's saying, God, I still want more of you. And I still want more of what you're doing in my life. Holy discontent is not being satisfied with the status quo. It's, it's not being willing to put your faith on cruise control. Holy discontent is hunger. It's a growing passion. It is a spiritual awakening that you want to take bloom in your life. It's saying we don't want to be comfortable when it comes to being a church. And again, we see that in this church. Again, verse two. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And again, keep in mind that we, we know about this church, that it was already a good and growing and healthy church. The people there were probably content. Today, if we were to describe this church, we'd probably say something like, you know, it was a church that had good attendance and lots of programs and plenty of baptisms and they made their budget every year. And there's churches today that dream of having it that good, of being that kind of a church. Churches today that want what Antioch already had. And it would have been so easy as a church like that to just get comfortable and settle in because things were going so well. And you know, as a pastor, I know firsthand one of the hardest things to overcome when it comes to leading a church is success. Because once you have a little bit of success, people just want to stay where they are. And yet that's not the picture we see in this church in Antioch. The church in Antioch, even though God had already done amazing things among them, they still wanted more. And that's why we're told that they're, they're worshiping and praying and fasting together as a church and as leaders of the church. And in fact, this is one of the only two times, two passages where fasting is mentioned in the book of Acts. So it's significant, you know, this level of prayer that's going on in this church because they were hungry, I mean, physically hungry because they're fasting, but it reflected that spiritual hunger within them because they were asking God for more, asking for his direction for them. They didn't want to settle down. And that's what a church needs to have in order for God to truly use it. And that's how we invite God's vision as a church, with, with a holy discontent, a desire that, God, you can do more. But that also means as a church that to invite vision, there also needs to be a willingness to step out in faith and take risks. Because a vision does not come without a cost. And often that cost is, is our own comfort. Uh, look at verse three. It says, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Now remember this church in Antioch, I mean, they already had a well-established leadership team. And they probably really worked well together and things were going well and were even given their names back in one, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manny, and Saul. And under the leadership of these five men, the church was flourishing. Things were going well. It's not as if this church was in decline or needed some kind of shakeup. So there'd be no logical reason whatsoever to sort of upset the apple cart and just send two of those leaders away. And yet to take hold of this vision that God gave to them, it would mean this church losing nearly half of their leadership team. And specifically, they were gonna lose the two key leaders who helped lead the church through their greatest time of growth. So you have to wonder, how is the church going to react to this news? Because I've seen churches react far worse to far less. 
And there will be some who are asking themselves, I mean, can we make it if we send these two guys off? Is that a risk we want to take? I mean, would giving drop off? Would ministry suffer? I mean, what are we going to do with all of that, without all of that wonderful teaching that Barnabas and Saul give to us every week? Maybe there were some people who came, you know, came to faith under Barnabas and Saul's leadership. And you're wondering, are those people going to leave the church? Could there be anger? Could have been a huge mess. This, this was a recipe for a church split if ever I heard one. I mean, whose silly idea was it to wreck the leadership of the church in Antioch anyways? Oh, it, it was God's. Um, and because while human wisdom would certainly have said, you know what, call it off. Just let stay home, play it safe, take care of your own. The church is going great. God's wisdom say, no, no you gotta go. You have to obey the call, you have to follow the vision, and you have to trust in God to take care of the rest. Because following God's vision as an individual or as a church is not easy, and God-sized visions always require risk. It's never safe, it always means sacrifice, and it'll always move us out of our comfort zones because it means entrusting in God first and not in ourselves. And that's why I think it's also important to understand that when God gives a church a vision, I'm not sure, I wasn't even sure how to word this, but I would say it's rarely a vision for the church itself. God's vision for a church, more often than not, that vision is given for the good of those outside of the church. And it's not that a church that follows God's vision isn't gonna be blessed, it is, and it's not that it's not gonna grow, and it probably will if you're being faithful, but more often than not, that vision that's given to the church is something that's selfless to the church. It's something that's the church giving itself away. It's other-focused. Even as we see here, God sends Barnabas and Saul off to minister to people that none of those people in the church of Antioch had ever met and likely never would. And that's interesting to me because I think if you look at sort of the vision statements you know, that most churches have kind of come up with them on their own. More often than not, a church's vision is really about what God wants to do, what they want God to do for them. Their vision often resolves around their church's growth or their church's programs or their preaching or their worship or their families and their marriages and, you know, their building programs and their plans. And there's nothing wrong with those things. But generally speaking, I think as a church, we don't need a vision from God to focus more on ourselves. And when God speaks to a church and gives them a vision, it's usually a vision that is reaching outsiders. It's reaching the unseen. It's reaching the unsaved or simply those who are other. God's vision, it gets our eyes off of ourselves. And it helps us to see opportunities for us to serve others. That's the fourth thing we learn in this passage, which leads us to the fifth lesson, just about inviting vision. And that is that a church should really discern God's vision together as a team through prayer. You know, the, this, this vision that we see in our passage, it's not just one guy having a good idea, you know, Moses coming down the mountain with a word from the Lord and say, everybody, you gotta get on board with this plan that I've had. No, instead, the vision that we see developing here is something more, it's grassroots. You know, it's the church and the leadership who get together to pray and to seek God together. 
And when that vision is finally gathered, they're, they're all sort of in agreement with one another. Because as a church, when you are inviting vision, you should also be inviting all of the people to come together and to pray about that vision and to discuss it together to, to, and discern together the purposes of God for your church. And when that happens, I think, you know, that God creates, you know, this, this groundswell of passion in the hearts of people for what he wants to do. And when it takes, you know, when it kind of crystallizes, the people are ready for that vision that God is giving to them because they've already been praying for it and seeking it together all along. We do this together. You know, and just as an aside here, I really appreciate, I guess, the diversity of the leadership that is, that is in this church. You know, back in verse one, we're told, now there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Think about these five guys and who you have here. You've got Barnabas, who is a devout Jew. That's how he was raised. You've got Simon called Niger, who is probably from somewhere in northern Africa. You have Lucius of Cyrene, who may have been one of the, you know, the, the Hellenistic Jews who originally planted this church from, from Cyrene. And you have Manian, who we're told was a friend of Herod, the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch was the one who killed John the Baptist. So you got to wonder, what was the unlikely path to faith for this guy in his life? And then you have Saul. Saul, who spent the first part of the book of Acts actually persecuting the church. That's a crazy group. And yet somehow God uses that diversity to unify them in vision and mission. That diversity becomes a strength of the church. And I think it just goes to show the more perspectives a church has, the greater a vision can be. And just so you know, as your pastor, I really, I think this is where our church is at right now. Even as a board, we've been talking about this and, and we've been wanting to do this. You know, we're going forward, something that is on our hearts is really how do we as a congregation find ways to pray together and just invite people of this church into having conversations around God's vision and where he wants us to go as a church so that we can discern together the vision of God for us. Because we do believe that God has a purpose and a vision for our church here at Northgate. That actually leads us to the next lesson from our passage this morning. And that's that churches that invite vision really do understand that God has a unique plan and purpose for each congregation. Because you know, this plan and vision for the church in Antioch, when you look at it, you realize it really was the perfect plan and vision for the church in Antioch. And while other churches, again, are going to eventually copy this model of ministry that they began, God's original vision was something he prepared just for them. And I'm not sure this would have worked, you know, in any other church, any other place. You know, this, this, was, this was Antioch. Because Antioch was really the perfect place for this vision to begin. Antioch, it was a, it was a city that had elements both of Eastern and Western cultures, sort of this melting pot. It had people who were comfortable living in different worlds, comfortable, you know, doing things cross-culturally. And Antioch was also really in the right place. In Antioch, if you traveled south, you ended up in Jerusalem. 
If you traveled north, you ended up in Asia. And if you went out west by sea, you ended up in Europe. I mean, it's the perfect jumping off point for worldwide evangelism. And Antioch also found itself in a place where they had the right people. Specifically because they had Saul. Saul, who God had already called and prepared to be an apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, when you really look at it, you realize that so much came together perfectly in Antioch at this time. You can't help but see God's, you know, fingers, fingerprints all over this, pulling the strings behind the scene to make this happen. God prepared a unique vision for this church, for this moment in time. And it fit them perfectly. And I believe that God still has a plan and purpose for each and every church. I believe that God has something that is unique to every body of believers that he's calling them to. And that God's vision for our church is not just to copy what some other church is doing or some other plan some church has or some other vision, you know, that we can read in a book that worked for some other church somewhere, usually in the States. But I believe that God will speak to us, knowing who we are, knowing our needs, knowing the people who are here, knowing what is dear to our hearts as a congregation, knowing our community, knowing our abilities and our resources and even our shortfalls. And I believe that God will take all of those things and shape them into a vision that is just for us. And he'll give us a purpose and a reason to be here that's more than just sort of having church on Sundays. He has a unique vision for us. Which leads us to the final lesson that we can learn from this passage. And that is that churches that invite vision must also be ready to accept ownership. And you see that in verse three again. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. And you know, laying on of hands in the Bible is, is always a picture of someone identifying them, themselves with something else. You know, in the Old Testament, uh, when you brought a lamb to the sacrifice to the priest, you laid your hands on that lamb as a symbol that this was your lamb, this was your sacrifice. He would be your substitute. And even when, you know, they ordained kings and stuff, they'd lay your hands on the leadership, saying, this is my leader, my king. It's ownership. So I think that by laying their hands on Saul and Barnabas, this church was saying, as you two guys go, we're going to go with you in spirit. We're going to be part of you in this. We're with you. This is not just your calling. As a church, this is our calling as well. It's not just your mission. It's become our mission. And we're taking hold of it with you. And we're going to support you. And we're going to encourage you. And we're going to empower you to do this thing for God in any way that we can. Because a church needs to get behind the vision that God gives and, and really make it their own. Because there's a danger that I think author Jack Andrews describes so well with the words, God, here I am, send someone else. But the church in Antioch, they embraced this vision that God gave to them. And as a pastor, that's, that's what I want for us as a church. Because, you know, I answered the call to come to this church when I did that, I, I did it because I didn't want to be a pastor of a church where I just had to preach and keep the lights on. I wanted to serve a church that was ready, you know, to see the kingdom of God break in. A church that would look outside of its own walls and see needs that we could be meeting. 
A church willing to take the next step. A church that says, even when things are going really well, we're hungry and excited for more. A church where we are ready to see God's vision together. And for our church, you know, that may mean facing some risks. Following God is never easy. It may mean making some mistakes as we go. You know, some things we try may not work. It may mean letting go of some things that have made us comfortable. And it will certainly mean trusting God and seeking his direction. But here at Northgate Baptist Church, we should not be afraid to dream big. And we should never think that a ministry is beyond our reach if God has placed it upon our hearts. And I truly believe that God wants greater things for our church than we can even imagine. Because that's what a vision, a God-given vision does for a church. And that's the lesson that the church in Antioch learned so long ago. And the lesson I want to take home with us today. Because, you know, 2,000 years ago, the church in Antioch, they, they sent two guys off into the horizon carrying little more than the clothes on their back and the gospel in their, in their hearts. And those two guys changed the world. And today, as our church stands looking out at another unknown horizon, I think Jesus wants to do the same thing. That in our church, in our lives, in our ministry, God will still provide, he'll still meet needs, he'll still change lives if we will only seek God and pray together that God will give us an opportunity to take hold of a vision where we will see God's work done and we will see God's glory shine. Because God has given us a hope and a future. So together, let's see where it takes us and invite God's vision into our lives and into our church. Let's pray. Father God, um, yeah, I love this church. This church to me is a joy. Um, and I love to serve it. I love the people here. I love that they are committed to the word of God and that there is fellowship here among each other that, and there is genuine care for one another. And there's in the desire of so many people's heart, a desire to share the good news with the people around us. And it's not a perfect church. But Lord, it's a wonderful church. And I know that, Lord, you are at work here among us. And I pray that as a church that you would just increase our passion for you. That, Lord, there would be in our hearts as a church a holy discontent that says, Lord, no matter how good it is, we just want more. We want to seek your face and your will. And we want to do that together as a church and pray that, Lord, you would reveal to us a vision for our church just to continue to serve you in amazing ways. That then, Lord, we would see lives change. We would see communities transformed. And that, Lord, you would answer our prayers and give us the courage to not only see where you want us to go, but the courage to follow you when you show us the way. And that, Lord, we would just be your church and that, Lord, we would just surrender ourselves to you, for your glory, for your honor, and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Mark.